Matthew chapter 5. That'll be our study for this afternoon. We're going to study something this afternoon. Y'all know, usually what happens is, because I'm, uh, some people call it analytical, some people call it crazy, other people call it OCD, whatever it is. I plan my sermons a year out, but Sunday afternoons I usually try not to plan out so that we can talk about things that come up during the week or something like that. This past week, I was reading 1 John, and I came to 1 John 3.15. that says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And I started thinking about what is hate and what is love, and you know, we always, a lot of times we spend a, a long time talking about how biblical love is not what the world thinks it is. It's not just wholesale approval of anything that someone does. But, and I think this goes for a lot of things in Christianity and a lot of things in, in, in my own personal thinking, a lot of times we're known for things that we're not or known for things that we're against rather than things that we're for. So I was just thinking about, this is just my personal reflection time. I was just thinking, have I ever really even defined biblical love. Most of the time, I I usually say something like, it's not the way the world sees it. It's not wholesale approval of what a person does. And then we go on. And I, I, I don't think I've ever really spent time, a whole lesson, just defining what biblical love is. And so what I thought we'd do today is do that. Now, 1 John chapter 3, verse 15 says that everyone who hates his brother doesn't really have the word love in it. It has hate. And so what I wanted to do real quick is take some time, go to the Sermon on the Mount, look at what biblical hate is, and then from that we can get the opposite, which is biblical love. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Matthew 5, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy and hate, or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And the Bible, when it says the word perfect, he means, means complete. You need to have a complete mindset about what, is, what hate and what love is in the scriptures in order to understand really what, what our command is. So in Matthew 5, 43 through 48, he starts off and he says, you've heard that it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You need, to, you need to switch that around. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. It doesn't say you should hate your neighbor. It implies that you should love everyone so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven and, for he, and he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. In the Jew's mind, anyone who was not a Jew was an enemy. They had a hierarchy, a social hierarchy that we'll talk about here in just a minute. But they had a social hierarchy in their minds as Jewish people, even though, I mean, let's just face it, okay? Even, I mean, this morning we talked about the continual exile and how they felt like they were still in exile until Jesus came. 
and how even though they went back after Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilt the city and the wall and reinstituted the, tab, uh, the, the temple worship and, and so forth, even, even after that, they still felt like they were in exile. But realistically speaking, the Jews were never a powerhouse. I mean, David is the closest they ever got. And David was a warrior king. One of the reasons why 1 Samuel uh, chapter 17 says that he, can't, he couldn't build the, the temple. Um, but still, he's, he's a warrior king, but he's not. Jerusalem, the Jews were never a world power. They were mighty. No one could stop them. But they never, you know, they never became world-renowned for their military might. They, were, they still were a bunch of rednecks that lived in the hills of Jerusalem. And they never really had all that powerful of a nation. However, in their social hierarchy, in their minds, the Jewish person was the top. They're the, the best of the best. Underneath them, you know, you have some Jewish children, Jewish male children. And under them, you have some types of Gentiles and so forth and so In fact, um, the, uh, the, the, the myth goes, I don't know what, to what degree this is actual, but the myth goes that you've heard of barbarians, heard of people being called barbarians, people that live off and, you know, when you think of a barbarian, you usually think of kind of Conan, right? Person that's not all that sophisticated, not all that intelligent, but he's good at one thing, fighting, right? The myth goes that the word barbarian came from the, the Hebrews because they couldn't understand the language of the people that were attacking them all the time. And so they said they just go bar, 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 bar. And so it became barbarians. I don't know how truthful that is, but that's a myth that's spread around a lot. You see, the Jews thought that they were the best of the best, even though they never really had a nation. They never really had a lot of money. They never really had a lot of anything. But anyway, so they felt like they were the best of the best. And so in Matthew 5, when he's giving the contrast between what they've been taught all these thousands of years really the last thousand years to what Moses intended and what God intended and now what the New Testament is going to become because if you remember the New Testament is Christianity was not a new religion it was a it was a a reworking for lack of a better term it was it was a redoing of the Jewish system you see Christianity was a fulfillment of of Judaism. And so when the Jews had the law, the, the true law of the Old Testament and the changes between that and the law of the New Testament are kind of small. There's a new place of worship in, in, in the church, not the building, but in the church, not the temple. There's new sacrifices. There's, there's twists, but it all fulfills in the New Testament. The problem is between Second Temple Judaism in the first century when, when Jesus is born and the Jews that he's talking to and the Christian law that he put together, there's a big difference between those two things. And so in Matthew 5, when he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. They saw every single person who wasn't a Jew as an enemy. The only people that they were going to love was their neighbor. And so in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, you've heard it said this way, he's not 
changing the law of Moses. He's correcting their misunderstanding of the law of Moses. So he says, you've heard it said that you should, you should hate your enemy and love your neighbor. What I'm telling you is you need to love your enemies too. You need to pray for those that are persecuting you and despitefully using you. You need to love your neighbor too. You're supposed to love other Jews, but you're supposed to love everyone outside too. Now, here's, here's a couple things that the Jews had that, um, that were hateful toward the people outside, the enemies, the Gentiles. Number one, it's racism. Acts chapter 10. These are things that we understand are wrong. So Peter opened his mouth, verse 34 of Acts 10, and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation among who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So regardless of if you're born in Jerusalem or if you're born in Samaria, if you're a full-blooded Jew or you're a Samaritan that's half-blooded, it's okay. If you live in Rome, or you live in Corinth, or you live in Egypt, or any of the other places that are in that world at that time, Christianity came on the scene and said, they're not our enemies. We're supposed to be loving them. They had this hierarchy. James chapter 2 talks about the social hierarchy of if a person comes in with bad clothing and you tell them, here, you sit back here in the back because we don't really, you know, this, this, we kind of, this is, this drives me nuts. When a church will say, well, you know, we're kind of a young professional group. We're kind of a young professional church. Well, that's great. So that means you just kick everybody out who's not 25 to 35 and has a job that makes makes six figures. We're We're a young professional group. Well, James 2 says you let everybody in, doesn't matter what they look like, doesn't matter where they're from, doesn't matter what kind of clothes they have on their back. But the Jews wouldn't do that. If you didn't have the certain amounts of money, if you didn't look the way that they wanted you to look, then they didn't want to have anything to do with you. If you were from Samaria, that was a poorer country than Jerusalem and Judah, then we're going to kind of push you to the back. They had lust problems, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 person uh, looks on a woman to lust after him. He's already committed adultery in his heart. The reason why Jesus puts that in the Sermon on the Mount is because it was a serious problem. See, the Jews thought that if I lust after a Jewish woman, that's bad because she's married to a Jewish man. But if I lust after a Gentile woman, that's perfectly fine because, I mean, Gentiles are barely human anyways. You see, this, this hatred... It's not, you know, a lot of times we say, well, they just didn't like the Gentiles. It wasn't just didn't like. It, it wasn't a dislike. It was, it was a deep hatred that was formed on just the fact that we're Jews and that means we're better than y'all. And then this is one that really upset the Jews. And that is they had a prejudice against the lost. Luke 19.10, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 15.10, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You see, the Jews didn't care. And that's a problem in Acts. Acts chapter 10. We don't want the Gentiles to be a part of the church. They're sinners. Yeah, they are. And so are you. And so were you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Well, we talked about this morning. The fact that hypocrites, if they're in the church, that's exactly where they need to be. You see, that's biblical hatred. Now, there is a way in which Jesus says that if you don't hate your father and your mother and come to me and cleave to me and follow me, then you're not worthy of the kingdom. The word he uses there is 
to love less. It means if you love your parents, your family, your physical being, your physical uh, blessings that you have, if you love those more than what you're supposed to be doing, then you might as well just not even try because it's, it's not your game. You're not, you're not even worthy of the kingdom if you're willing to, to put these things over God. But what he's talking about in Matthew 5 when he says hatred, that's the kind of hatred, the, the racism, the, the social hierarchy that we're better than you because we have a little bit more money than you, the, the idea that the Jewish people are the best people on earth because they're chosen by God. The Jewish people were the best off people on earth because they were chosen by God. They were not the best people. I mean, you read the Old Testament and you come to me and tell me that the people outlined in the Old Testament are good, wholesome, godly people when they're committing fornication, offering their babies on the altar of Molech, when they're committing fornication with each other and with everyone else around them, when they're worshiping by that, when they're taking the law of God and changing it into something that fit their personalities more, which is what the Sermon on the Mount is bent toward, fixing those problems. They're not wholesome, good people. They were better off because they had the second chance that other nations around them did not. I mean, look at Edom, book of Obadiah. They, Edom didn't get a second chance. Edom had a chance to help the nation of Israel. They didn't help the nation of Israel. Obadiah comes on the scene and says, you think you're so big because you live in the top of mountains? God's going to bring you down to where you need to be. They didn't have a second chance, but the Israelites did. So that's biblical hatred. Now, the opposite of that is in 1 Corinthians 13. It's the chapter on love. It's the one that everybody memorizes in, you know, in Lads to Leaders. It's the one that, that we can probably all quote to some degree, if, if not, you know, if not completely, but at least have an idea about it. So here's what I want to just read 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 8. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. So number one, love is more important than worship. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, I don't have love. I'm just like a clanging sound, a banging gong or a, or a tinkling cymbal. My love toward other people is more important than my worship to God. Now that sounds contradictory, doesn't it? That sounds counterintuitive. I thought that Christianity was all about worshiping God. It is. We'll talk about that here in just a minute of how it is. But my, my coming to this church building is less important than how I love people who aren't in this church building right now. And I can prove it to you by this. We'll talk about one way here in just a minute. But I can prove it to you by this. If you have a problem with your brother, the Bible says to do what? Lay your gift at the altar... Go fix it with your brother and then come back and worship. Okay. How do I put this bluntly? If you have a disagreement with a brother in Christ, the Bible says you are to walk in this church building on a Sunday morning when everybody's, you know, when everybody's fellowshipping and spending time and everybody's, you know, some people running late and so they're rushing in and dropping, the, you know, that sort of stuff. All right. During that time, the Bible says if you have a problem with your brother, you're supposed to walk down the aisle Put your check in that plate, 
and walk back out and then go fix it and then you can come back. That's how important it is for loving one another. It's that you leave your gift at the altar. That means your, your koinonia, your money. You leave your gift at the altar, you go fix it and then you come back. Number two, verse number two of 1 Corinthians 13. And if I have a prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. So number one, loving each other is more important than our personal worship on Sundays. Number two, loving each other is more important than our knowledge of the scriptures, which is interesting because Isaiah 53 says that our knowledge of Jesus Christ brings about righteousness. What is righteousness? Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of righteousness, his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's how you act out your Christianity. So it's more important than, than worship. It's more important than your working out your salvation with fear and trembling. So it doesn't matter if you go and evangelize. If you don't love each other, it doesn't, doesn't count, as it were. Verse three, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. It's more important than worship. It's more important than our personal convictions and our knowledge of the scripture and our, and our own working of our salvation and our beliefs. It's more important than, number one, verse three, benevolence. Did you know that you can help people financially and not love them? I mean, that's how we usually think. Oh, I'm loving. I help everybody that I can. Doesn't mean you're loving them. You can be doing that out of self-gratification. You can be doing that out of self-motivation that you want them to owe you something in the future, something like that. And it's more, this is what gets me, verse number three. If I deliver up my body to be burned, it's more than self-sacrifice. If I'm gonna, it's more important to love one another than to be a martyr for the cause of Christ. Something that the early Christians said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the gospel. That thousands of people are converted to Christianity because martyrs were killed in the Circus Maximus. And yet Paul says it's more important to love one another. So here's what love is. Verse number four. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not boast, does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude, does not insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's easy to, to say, right? And that's the verses that we usually think about. It's not envious, it's not self promoting, it's it's but here's what it really is. And, and I think these three verses will give you something. Maybe you can write these down in the front of your Bibles to remind yourself of what 1 Corinthians 13 really means. How's it, how's it seen in, in effect? Genesis 1, 26, we're created in the image of God. Now, Matthew 7, verse 12, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So Genesis says we're created in the image of God. Matthew says that as I'm created in the image of God, I want to be treated 
fairly and justly and righteously. And so I'm going to treat other people because notice what it says at the end of the golden rule. For this is the law and the prophets. Teacher, Matthew 22, verse 36. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest, first and great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The Jews had a problem. Back to Matthew chapter 5. The Jews had a problem with understanding what love was. What love was, was, was treating every single person inside or outside the temple outside the nation of Israel, inside or outside the church today, the exact same. Treating every single person the exact same the way we want to be treated. I mean, it's simple, right? And we understand that. It's the golden rule. We tell the kids that all the time. But seeing it in action is much different than actually just quoting off Matthew seven twelve as the golden rule. If you go back to the mindset that the Jews were having in Matthew 5, he says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Verse 48, verse 47. If you only greet your brothers, what, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? If we're going to love one another, if we're going to love other people, which... Jesus says, hang all the law and the prophets. And if Christianity is not a new religion, but it is a a reworking, a culmination, a fulfilling of the Old Testament law. I mean, what we talked about this morning in Bible class, that that some people in the world say that Christians just, we just don't believe the Old Testament at all. That we don't use the Old Testament at all. It's not true. The greatest commandment that we have, Jesus says, is exactly what the Old Testament was meant to do. To love your neighbor as yourself, to love God, number one, and to love neighbor as yourself, number two. And he says, this is, this, this is the entire point of the entire Old Testament is to teach us how to do that. Now we're in the Christian age, which is the culmination of that, which means now we have a way to do it. And the way to do it is by showing them what we want to be shown. Evangelism, benevolence, help, encouragement. A lot of times we, we have this kind of prejudice against the lost that, that they're, you know, they're down here. They're, they don't know any better. Well, they don't know any better. But that doesn't mean that they're less human than us or less important than us. It means that they should be the most important thing to us because we should be helping them. But here's the thing. Here's what biblical love defined really is. It is taking a person and seeing them for what God made them to be. And that is easier said than done for every single one of us. Y'all know people who you look at them and you just think, man, if I, what, if, if I didn't know better, I'd think there was a mistake made somewhere in there. I mean, you're right. you, you know those type of people. The problem is there wasn't a mistake made. There were sins, maybe. There were consequences, yeah, but 
It wasn't a mistake made. They're made just like you and me. And the Jews had a real problem with that. And that's why in the, 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 the kind of foundation of Christianity, the, the one sermon that, that, that molds the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus took time to talk about how we should love one another, love each other, love everyone outside, not just our neighbors, not just the people who are like us, the members of the church only, but that we should love everybody. If there's a reason for you to respond to the invitation this afternoon, maybe you need encouragement or prayers or something else to repent of public sin, we're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement for you and let us know why we do that.